Hello, hello. I am so glad we have this time together. I'm Sanaa Laybourne. I am a professor, scholar, connector, and avid reader. I've always loved learning about what's happening in our social world and sharing that knowledge, especially over a good cup of coffee. And so here we are. Each week on Let's Grab Coffee, I catch up with experts from across the country who are investigating our most pressing social issues and common curiosities. Over the next hour, you'll learn about their inspirations, motivations, and of course, what they know about the world around us. Go ahead and grab that cup of coffee and get ready for a fun and insightful conversation. In the last few years, loss and grief have become a shared collective experience, particularly in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic. This period has also put the inequities in the U.S. healthcare system front and center, along with the ways that what has been quote-unquote normal has often been harmful or unsustainable. So how do we make sense of the loss of loved ones, especially when the systems that should take care of us fail us? How do we learn to take care of ourselves in a society that expects us to work hard at all times, leaving little room to properly grieve? And what type of new normal do we want our future to hold? Nicole Chung wrestles with these questions and more in her latest book, A Living Remedy. Nicole is the author of the national bestseller, All You Can Ever Know, named a best book of the year by over 20 outlets, including NPR, The Washington Post, and Time. All You Can Ever Know was a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Award, the NABA Book of the Year, a semifinalist for the Penn Open Book Award, a Barnes & Noble Discover Great New Writers selection, and an Indies Choice Honor Book. Nicole is currently a contributing writer at The Atlantic, a Time contributor, and a Slate columnist. Her writing has also appeared in The New York Times, The New York Times Magazine, The Guardian, Harper's Bazaar, Esquire, GQ, and Vulture. Born and raised in the Pacific Northwest, she now lives in the Washington, D.C. area. I'm so happy to have you here, Nicole. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I could not wait to read A Living Remedy. Um, Of course, I have um, your first book, All You Can Ever Know, which was um, so groundbreaking for adoptees, right, to see our story um, and to be written in such a, a beautiful way. So thank you so much for that. And I knew once A Living Remedy was out that I had to have it. But this is very different than your first book. It is. It is. It's much, uh, I think it's broader in scope and in a way it covers more of my life. And whereas All You Can Ever Know was very focused on, you know, my search for my Korean birth family and, and what I discovered there um, when I searched, this book is, is really more focused on my adoptive parents and me and that relationship um, and what it's been like to grieve for them. Mm-hmm, absolutely. I mean, there are so many themes interwoven throughout this book, of course, grief being, you know, a key theme, but also community care and the structures structures of our society that are impacting how we experience the world. So of course, healthcare and capitalism. Um, but for me as a reader, what I really took away from this book or what I thought was a particular gift that you've given us in this story is you are writing this as you're in the early stages of your grieving process. Um, and so it, the book itself feels very much in process. There isn't a tidy conclusion, right? It's messy, it's questioning, it's human. And I really love being brought into, you know, a glimpse into to your grief grieving process, um, but it also helped me think through my own grieving process. Um, and I'll just be honest, I jump right in with tears. 
<laughs> I was crying by the end of the third page. And so I think, you know, making that human connection for me, I think that's just the hallmark of a really great writing that you're able to connect with your reader and make us make us feel something. Thank you very much. I mean, this book, another big difference, I think, between my first and my second is that uh, the events in the first book, you know, I was five or more years past my search and reunion when I wrote that book. And of course, as you know, adoption is something we're always figuring out our, our feelings and our thoughts about it are always shifting and evolving. But in terms of the actual events in that story, things were fairly settled. Mm-hmm. And as you point out with A Living Remedy, I'm writing you know, in the throes of a very immediate grief. Um, you know, I didn't have like a five-year buffer between yeah. you know, I was working on it. I started, I started writing it before my mother passed away in 2020 and then put it down for a while. And then, but I did start writing again, you know, five, six months after she died, which is not, not that long. Um, mm-hmm. And in that sense, it is, it's very raw. And I was really striving for, you know, emotional honesty, which I think is important in, in any kind of writing. Um, but it was a new kind of challenge, you know, and there were many points when I didn't know, honestly, if I'd be able to finish it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And again, just thank you so much for for writing this book. Um, you mentioned, you know, adoption and being an adoptee. It is a continual process and we're constantly, um, you know, learning new things or maybe thinking about things in a different way. And so for me, the book, I was reading it definitely through that lens as an adoptee. And so I, I kind of wrote, you know, notes throughout the book. I'm like, ah, I'm like, so in my adoptee feelings <laughs> right now, but then also in the, just those general feelings of grief and knowing what it's like to, to lose a parent and to kind of see a, a parent, you know, like slowly die in front of you as well. I think, So in thinking about your father and kind of that process that you talk about in the book, because it is about both the grieving process with your both both parents, your mom and your dad. It's true. I mean, something I've said about this book is uh, every book is a process, you know, that writing process. And it's different every time. And in this case, it's it's a process about a process because grief is that's what grief is. And it's it's not linear. You know, it's not uh, it's different for everybody. And so, um, you know, as many like grief stories as I've consumed over the years, and I guess particularly like in the last handful of years because of what I've been going through, I mean, everyone is just so different um, because everyone's relationships are different, um, those experiences and losses. Uh, So yeah, on, on the one hand, I think it was sort of daunting to try to add to what's a very robust field of literature mm-hmm. about this subject. And on the other hand, I actually wasn't worried about, um, I don't know, having it feel original or wondering if I had something to say, you know, um, and just because of the circumstances of when and how I lost both my parents, you know, I knew, I knew there was a lot to work through mm-hmm. um, and hopefully things that will help other people feel seen or less alone in their grief. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, what's coming to mind as you were just talking was in the book, you have this line that says, I'm an expert at grieving under capitalism. And I'm thinking about that because as you mentioned, you know, you're writing this book and you have kind of one way you're going to approach it. And then you, your mom passes and then you're still writing kind of in this process of processing that loss um, and also still kind of 
you know, as you talk about in the book, just doing life as normal as if, you know, I just have to meet this deadline or, or, or finish this pitch. And I'm wondering still too, because I also acknowledge that, you know, much of the book tour is also was happening and is happening as you're still grieving. And so I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, of course. You know, it's, it's kind of interesting. I mean, I wouldn't say it was like a throwaway line, the grieving mm-hmm. under capitalism, but I didn't know that it would resonate with people the way it has, you know, but it, it's something that's come up in like nearly every interview. Mm-hmm. And like, of course, there's a reason for that. It often feels as though and one of the many, there's so many lies of capitalism, but one is just that we're constantly being asked or expected to deny our humanity mm-hmm. and the humanity of those around us. And it's a particularly difficult thing to do while grieving. Um, because grief can be so all-consuming you know it's physical it's emotional it affects your psychological mental state of mind and at the same time you know many of us in this country especially like we we work with no bereavement leave to speak of or Mm -hmm. uh, you know no kind of paid leave or even guaranteed unpaid leave Um, and so often not just after a loss, but leading up to it, when our loved ones are ill, like declining, you know, my mother's in hospice, for example, or my father's very, very ill. Um, there is no taking time off, even when trying to figure out elder care and manage, like managing my parents' affairs from afar was essentially like a second, almost full-time job at mm-hmm. certain points. I still had my actual full-time job to be doing and and the work of parenting never stops. And, uh, you know, I'm also a freelancer. So it was just, it often felt as though there was no chance to pause or to rest or to breathe or to treat myself like a human being. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember particularly in the days after my father died, that was my first major loss. I didn't know, I know there is no normal with grief, but I did not know what would be normal for me. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking, okay, like I will take a week off, maybe two, and that's then I'll I'll be all right. I'll be able to at least go back to work. And I did, but it was incredibly hard. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't know. I just, I hadn't anticipated how that would feel. And I knew the healthier, better thing for me would be to take longer, um, to not just jump back into working and managing and editing and trying to promote a book or going on tour. And it was not an option really mm-hmm. to pull back on any of that, unless I gave up my income, you know, um, I don't know with my mother too, when she got sick and started hospice care, like I remember thinking unpaid leave, like this would be an amazing time to take family leave because I just wanted to be able to focus on her and the time we had left. Um, and there was no way to do that. Cause I'm financially supporting her at that point. Mm-hmm. So again, there's just like, there's just the nonstop grind of what we are not just expected, but like required to do for survival, I think under, under capitalism. And it was distressing to realize on top of everything else, on top of like how difficult it was to grieve and all the time and energy that sapped. Like in addition to that, there was just so little space to, Mm -hmm. to be a human being who was mourning. Yeah. I mean, I'm just thinking about those words, you know, to, to the space to be a human being who is mourning, right? There, It's as though we have to keep going. We have to keep going. And it's not just a feeling that we have to get keep right. going. But as you mentioned, it's the material reality that if I actually take this time that I need, um, 
then the pay the the hand not the payoff but the the handoff or trade off is that I don't have money to pay bills or you know I can't I literally cannot live right I I need to grieve in order to live but I also need to continue to work in order to to live in the capitalist society that we've created because bills will continue to be due and I must pay them. And your book, of course, that is one of the main, you know, points of the book is talking about these systems that we're living under capitalism, but also in particular, the healthcare system, which you really talk a lot about in your book. Um, and you make the a, a lot of great connections between past healthcare systems, present, and just all the, 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 the holes that we have in these systems that are supposed to take care of us. And I think for a lot of people, unless you've, you know, experienced, um, you know, either a loss or just someone needing a lot of support, um, you may not be aware of how incomplete our healthcare is. It's true. I mean, I think I was always kind of aware growing up that, um, you know, I didn't go to the doctor very often or the dentist, like we frequently did not have like health insurance mm-hmm. when I was a kid. I think I went basically when I was sick or really sick or when I needed like vaccinations. Um, and I kind of thought that was normal, but I didn't think about it much. Even my parents who are obviously decades older than me when we were all younger and healthier, I don't think it was top of mind, mm-hmm. right? It wasn't until they began facing various medical crises and then having to meet those, sometimes needing expensive medications. Uh, my mother needed two surgeries when I was in high school. And, um, you know, we met these crises uninsured. And as a kid, as a teenager, even I'm not aware, right, of like, I don't know, medical debt and, and the results for my family, but I saw the effects, right? I saw that suddenly, you know, we'd always kind of scraped by and suddenly there was just like not enough. Um, and I knew, you know, by later in high school, okay, I'm working this part-time job after school, And that's what's paying for a lot of my basic needs, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, not just like luxury items, but like clothes and shoes and school lunches and college application fees and all that. Um, I think like a lot of people, I learned about like money and like our, our class and kind of where my family, how my family was situated in the world, like not through what was explicitly told to me, but what I observed and then tried to figure out myself. Mm And so I would say like, even when there wasn't enough money until my parents started getting sick and having these different health emergencies, I don't think any of us were actually thinking too much about like the gaps in our healthcare, Mm -hmm. right? And then, um, but like my parents, of course, were living with like the financial reality. And uh, my father in his fifties started to really decline. I mean, he had what we now know was renal failure as a result Mm -hmm. of untreated diabetes for many years. Um, it was just really difficult for him to access the regular preventive care, um, the treatment, the medications that he needed. Um, and so, uh, when he started feeling really, really sick, like my parents couldn't figure out what was wrong. He couldn't go to the doctor. Um, they were both unemployed at that point. Dad was finally convinced to apply for like social security disability and like so many Americans was denied, mm-hmm. um, was too proud to appeal and they were either ineligible for or just denied like every form of assistance. I remember helping them research, you know, there's what about rental assistance? What about like, you know, food, um, like 
And there was just, there was nothing they were really eligible for at their ages and without dependents in the home. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't actually just the healthcare system, right? Which they were also denied Medicaid, like the Oregon health plan, but it wasn't just that, that failed them. I mean, there were so many places where they kind of just fell through the safety net again, like so many people in this country do. Um, and so what had really always been like a danger, like looking back, we were always kind of living like on the ragged edge of stability. Mm-hmm. That was a kind of stability, as I write, that was dependent on like absolutely everything going right. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think that as my dad got sicker and my parents got older and like the need for like elder care really like surfaced in my life, that's that's when we really had to begin to grapple with these failing structures and systems. Um, and I don't know, it's just such a common, it's such a common American story, right? Mm-hmm. But um, when you're going through it, you can feel as though you're all alone. You feel like everything is on you because in a sense it is, that's what we do. We leave people, individuals, families, communities um, to try to meet these challenges without, without the resources and the support and the care that we need and deserve. Mm -hmm. As you mentioned, so many different systems intersecting and failing, right? Not just your family, but millions of families in the United States. And even though this is a very common experience, which I think COVID-19 has really brought to the forefront, right? Because it is happening to so many people so publicly at you know the same time. Um, but we're taught to, as you talk about in the book, see it as an individual moral failure. Um, you say this is a country that takes little responsibility for the health and well-being of its citizens while urging us to blame each other and ourselves for our precarity under an exploitative system in which all but a small number of us stand to suffer or lose much. And I mean, I think that's that's what kind of keeps this system running um, as terribly as it is, right? This belief that, oh, it's our responsibility. If we only we made better choices, if only we, you know, took care of ourselves, um, ignoring the ways that the system is set up to not do what it, it says it's supposed to do. <laughs> right. Um, and so then we do often find ourselves suffering alone or, or not having the support, even just emotional support that we need because we've internalized that, oh, it's something we've done as individuals. Right. The idea that you can bootstrap your way out of poverty or Mm -hmm. that, you know, part of your American dream is going to include like the care and the support and the stability that you've worked for. Um, It's just, I don't know, with healthcare in particular, I think a lot about how it's just a matter of not getting what you pay for, because of course, uninsured people still have to try to access the healthcare system. People still like pay so much. We have one of the most expensive healthcare systems in the world. And yet even insured people um, suffer or don't get the care they need or can't afford it or end up with staggering medical debt because of that. Um, and, it, and it is set up so that you kind of blame yourself. I mean, I remember thinking, God, why didn't I plan better? Why didn't I like have more contingency plans? Why am I not ready to completely financially support my parents and provide like healthcare for them, you know, in my early to mid thirties, like, I don't know. I always imagined too, that like I bought into this myth that if I worked hard enough, long enough, I'd be able to take care of them. Mm-hmm. And maybe eventually that would have worked out, but we did not have enough time in the end, right. you know, because of when, when they got sick. Um, so that's, I mean, that is something I'll have to always live with. But for me, part of my grieving process has been 
trying to remind myself that I am actually not, you know, I'm not responsible for these structural failings. Mm-hmm. I think we do have um, obligations for each other and we have love for each other. And what, what do we do in community and family? We try to take care of each other, even if like we're up against a lot, you know, the odds are stacked against us, but I don't think we're to blame, you know, when it's just not enough um, because the system is very much rigged against so many of us. And that's mm-hmm. just, that's just reality. Yeah, absolutely. And I love that reminder, right? We can't have these individual solutions to social problems, right? Even though we have often bought into this idea that we can, like you said, pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and and achieve that American dream. Um, But we do live in these systems that are created in a certain way where, you know, we really can't win and definitely not as individuals. Um, You touched on this idea of community care, and I want to talk more about that, but let's take a quick break. I'm Sanaa, and you're listening to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91. 0.7 FM. This is Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Sanaa and we are chatting with Nicole Chung, the author of A Living Remedy. Now, Nicole, before the break, you were mentioning about um, the communities of care. And that's something that I saw threaded throughout your book. And I loved how I saw, you know, ideas of both community care, but also these different communities of belonging is also what I was reading into that book as well. And I loved how how you talk about how your parents were really cared for by a religious community that they had become, you know, a big part of in their community. Um, even though you weren't necessarily, you know, part of that religious community, mm-hmm. you saw how important it was to them and all the ways that they really showed up. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit more of these ideas of community care. Sure. So, I mean, that is one of the bigger examples in the book is the the religious community my parents were part of. They converted to uh, Orthodox Christianity after I left home. So it's not a faith tradition that I shared with them. I was raised very Catholic. <laughs> um, and they, uh, so their parish was really small um, and very close-knit. Um, and I remember first being aware of it, like on the periphery, you know, when I would go on visits home, I didn't usually go to church with them. Um, but it was just, I mean, I could tell it was a big part of their lives and that they've made many like very close friends through this group. Um, I admit sometimes like looking back, I was a little skeptical. I have reason to be somewhat skeptical, I think, of religious community. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been in some, I don't want to go into it, but I've been in some strange Uh, toxic spaces before Mm -hmm. you know I remember living under that pressure for a while Um, but with my parents there was something about their faith in their community that didn't seem to make them feel as boxed in Mm -hmm. or like small as mine had made me feel sometimes like for them I think it was a real source of um of freedom they could be who they were and they felt respected and seen and nourished when my father started really getting sick, I mean, I saw their community show up for them in so many ways. Mm-hmm. There was a parishioner who was a general contractor. And when my dad was having mobility issues, he came to their mobile home and outfitted it like with ramps and railings and everything that um, that he needed to be able to navigate the home safely and just did it at cost, you know, mm-hmm. just the cost of materials. Um I don't know, people were always coming by bringing food and just like more than that, like company, 
Mm-hmm. I think it's one of the things that you can face when you're caring for a sick loved one is isolation. Absolutely. Um, I mean, in addition to the time and energy and expense and all of that, the stress, it can just feel as though you're alone. And I will say, like, I don't think my parents were ever really alone. Um, even during the pandemic, when my mom was in hospice, because my mother started hospice care for cancer, um, right as like the first coronavirus cases were being reported in the U.S., um, and it was obviously like wretched timing, not that there's any good timing for mm-hmm. that, but, um, like I was really comforted that she still had like close friends. I mean, chosen family, essentially visiting her masked and bringing her food and walking her dog, um, and just helping, like just sitting with her, making sure she was not alone while she was dying. I was especially grateful because the pandemic kept me from traveling across the country to be with her at, mm-hmm. um, So I know there were just so many ways. I mean, I'm not even remembering all of them, but I really saw this kind of love and care in action. Um, And I was actually nervous writing about it because it's one of those things like I'm not, I'm not inside that, Mm -hmm. that community. I didn't want to be presumptuous, uh, but I really felt, you know, it was just important to acknowledge what they did for my parents, even, even like, I don't know, big things. Like I remember trying to talk with my mother about end of life care and like a will she didn't have a will she was really resisting creating one and I don't know that I would have been able to get her to kind of talk about those things and make those decisions uh if not for like her friends from church like they came and sat with us and Mm -hmm. there was something about their presence that just allowed her to to go there right and to feel like she wasn't burdening me with all of it alone you know um so I'm very very thankful for that Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I really enjoyed reading that part or those parts throughout the book, um, particularly because, as you mentioned in the book, you know, you're not a part of the religious community. You know, you have some skepticism around around certain parts about uh, religious communities, but you saw how important it was to to your mom and and to your parents, and you were happy that they had, you know, and you said in their new community, I believe they were seen and known, nurtured and valued in a way they hadn't been elsewhere. Um, and I thought that was, you know, just so important. Um, again, in thinking about how important social connections are and community, um, not just when we are going through, you know, an illness or major illness or loss, but just for our general well-being as well. Um, so I really enjoyed reading that. Um, you also mentioned as you were talking, you know, that those community members, those church members, you saw like love in action. Um, and that was actually another theme that I, I picked up on, not just for the religious community, but also for, as you were reflecting, you know, kind of in your own story about the way that folks were really actively loving you and showing up for you as well. And I just found that so comforting. And, you know, of course, this is a book about grieving, but the ways that people actively love us, not just in words, but really in their actions. Yeah. I mean, one thing, I'm not sure if this is what you're referring to, but um, because my mother died in the spring of 2020, I mean, we had to live stream her funeral. Like we were alone. We weren't seeing anybody. And it could have felt like so, so lonely. Um And I won't lie, there were times when I did feel that was really hard, you know, Um, but I wasn't alone. You know, I had my my family, my spouse, my kids. And then I had like a lot of friends and like chosen family reaching out at that time. So even though 
that they couldn't travel to be with me. You know, I think that my friends especially were really trying to make sure I knew that they were thinking of me, that they were holding me. Um, I guess one example, you know, I can think of things like people obviously sent food and they sent flowers and they, they did those things that you do. But then um, like I was having so much anxiety around the phone. I could not answer it. I wrote about this a little bit, but mm-hmm. for like months, all my phone calls had been about my mom, about her dying. Um, it was always bad news. I had cried so much on the phone um, that after she died, I found like every time the phone rang, like my heart rate would spike. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I couldn't really talk to people who were reaching out, trying to express concern and love. So a group of my friends um, like organized this like like video condolences. They filmed themselves just talking about how they loved me and they were thinking of me. And, you know, I saw, I mean, it, it was, I saw like them at home or like in their backyards or, or whatever, mm-hmm. um, just like wherever they were also isolating, quarantining. Um, and it, they sent them to me so I could watch them like whenever I wanted and not have like, I guess the pressure of responding mm-hmm. or having to kind of be in conversation, which was really beyond me at that point. Um, and I, w- I remember watching them just like over and over, you know, it was, it was just such a beautiful thing that they realized it was a way they could be there for me, even though I was, I was not answering my phone. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know, like how kind of creative and also really wonderful. So I, I mean, I still get teary when I think about that and I mm-hmm. still have those messages. It just meant a lot to me. So I don't really have like adoptive family left. They're all gone at this point. Um, but I feel really lucky in my, in my chosen family. Um, and yeah, in my, in my communities, you know, near and far. Mm-hmm. That's so beautiful. I was also feeling like, oh, getting a little choked up when you, you know, mentioned that because how beautiful to know, right. Have that tangible evidence of how, how loved and supported you are. And I think also you know, for folks listening, like just knowing that, you know, people sometimes, even though we want to express care and concern through, you know, picking up the phone and calling someone that that can also be a little too much, right. For that person. Um, and for thinking about other ways that we can show up for the people in our lives. So I think that's an important reminder. Um, I'm thinking about, you know, so many people, even within the last months, you know, have lost loved ones and me just thinking about, okay, how can I show up for them in a way that is actually helpful to them? Um, and still I'm able to, you know, love on them, um, but in a way that isn't going to feel like a, a, a burden to them. Right. Um, so thank you so much for sharing that. Um, you mentioned about, and of course you talked about this in the, in the book as well about, you know, losing, as you mentioned, you know, not having any of your adoptive family, um, left. And you talk about in the book, how, um, your favorite cousin, you know, has a conversation with you asking, you know, how are you feeling? And you say, it's like being unadopted. Um, and as an adoptee, you know, that, that I can, think about what that could feel like. Right. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit more about how you are feeling now. Yeah. I mean that, I will say that word, I was not trying to be like dramatic. It actually just came out and sort of mm-hmm. surprised me because I hadn't realized I was feeling that way. Um, my cousin's like, the, he's wonderful. We're like the same age. We've always been close. 
And uh, when he was, when we were little, he didn't realize I was adopted, which is like really cute. <laughs> like mm -hmm. I, I still tease him about that, but like, that was just not how he thought about me. Yeah. <laughs> we were young enough that it was like kind of adorable. It wasn't like this colorblind thing. Right. It was like, it was sincere. Like you're just my cousin. Exactly. And I just love you. <laughs> um, he's the like last person I think in that family that I'm, you know, still close to, but like everyone else is gone. And I just remember feeling especially because my dad, my maternal grandmother, and then my mother like passed away within two years of each other. Mm -hmm. And they were like the three people who raised me yeah. and the people who really like remembered my childhood. They're the ones who I would always be like, Oh, remember when this happened? And like, they always remembered. Um, mm -hmm. There's nobody left like that for me. Um, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of distance geographical and emotional in my adoptive mm -hmm. family. And not to dwell on it uh but I've always been aware as a transracial adoptee as the only adoptee in my adoptive family um I was always kind of aware of like who really accepted me right and who didn't mm -hmm. like who understood or accepted or respected my parents choice to adopt me and who didn't mm -hmm. and um so all that to say I actually have a pretty large extended family and I'm not you know my parents and I were not in close contact with, with many of them. Mm -hmm. So when I lost my parents and my grandmother, it felt like that was it. Like these threads yeah. that tied me to this family have are gone. And like, what does it mean to be an adoptee still? And to very much have that part of what formed me, but to no longer have my adoptive parents or those adoptive family relationships, like they're, they're all gone. Mm -hmm. um, I probably wouldn't use the term unadopted now. You know, mm -hmm. I don't think that's where I am, but in that moment, that really bleak moment when I'm talking to my cousin and I'm losing my mother, like yeah. the last person, like, I mean, it felt very emotionally true in that moment, mm -hmm. um, for where I am now. I mean, the facts are still the facts, you know, I've still lost, lost those people and lost, lost that family. Mm -hmm. Um, but I know that the fact that my parents raised me, right. That's still, that still shaped so much of who I am. Mm -hmm. I, I still, I still benefit from like that love and that care mm -hmm. and that support that they gave me. Um, and I don't know, I guess I don't, I don't actually feel less adopted. <laughs> um, but I, I am still learning like what it means to be an adoptee whose adoptive family is gone. Mm -hmm. Um, it is a, it is like, on the one hand, I think my grief is perhaps similar to what so many people who lose parents experience. And on the other hand, like, like I wrote in the book, my, my grieving, you know, is really affected by the fact that I am an adoptee mm -hmm. um, and that it's a reminder, right? It brings back like that original loss, yeah. like that, uh, those original, the loss I don't remember, but still happened of my first family um, and those connections, which although I'm in reunion, like, and very close to my sister, those connections can never really be fully recovered. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the losses of adoption. So it, it definitely brought up like losing my adoptive parents definitely brought up, you know, some of that adoption grief for me as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, as I was reading the book, but even as you were 
talking now, you know, so much of what you said, I'm like, yes, I could, you know, it's helped. It's, I'm thinking through things as well, because even in my adoptive family, you know, like my dad is really the only connection I have to extended family. So somewhat similarly, we have been, you know, out of contact, or at least I've been out of contact with a lot of my extended family. And he's kind of been that link. Um, but just different things are changing to where it very much feels um like I could understand, like if my dad, if and when my dad passed, I will feel very much as like as though I have no more connections to a lot mm-hmm. of my extended family. And so thinking through um you know, what it's like to be, as I, I've thought about it, because I'm I'm not married, I don't have children, how it feels to be somewhat untethered to this world, right? Like you don't have these family connections that are supposed to be, you know, in our society, just like the way that we're connected to people or the way that we know that, you know, where we belong. Um, and so thinking through as an adoptee, you know, how that shapes, you know, these feelings of grief or how we think about, about family as well something that you talk about in the book and you mentioned now as well is like those shared memories, right? Like there's no one that you could just say, Oh, remember that time when, you know, whatever happened. Um, and it, and you talk about in the book, like it would take too much explaining for me to share this memory, you know, with, with yeah. your family. Right. Um, and I was thinking about that as well. Like what all do we lose? Right. A little bit, a part of ourselves because we don't have someone who can recall that same, you know, great memory or funny story. You lose like a certain shorthand. I mean, that's really what you think of it or like a a special language that you share with people who've like known you forever. And I'm not, I'm not trying to say, I think like either biological or adoptive family is the only like legitimate family or the only way you can have that history or that those connections. I'm really lucky actually to have like old friends who've known me since like elementary, middle school, like not Mm -hmm. many, but like actually the, (laughs) the people visiting me this week, Mm -hmm. um, like one of them, she's a dear friend that I've known since we were probably in like fifth grade. Um, and so like, you know, she remembers actually what I was like as a, as a kid or as a teen anyway. Um, but yeah, I've lost that ability to just like, I mean, with my grandmother, even when my grandmother's dementia was really advanced, there were certain memories of me and our time together because she helped raise me that she held on to. Mm-hmm. Um, she would say, Oh, remember when we would like, you know, go fishing or crabbing or walk on the beach. Like, remember that time we were out in the bay and like, we, like the boat floated away from like the Island where we were clamming. You know, there's like, remember the time you got lost and the coast guard had to like find you. <laughs> and like me, you notice, I mean, there are all these things. I don't know, people who remember my grandmother's recipes and how they tasted and what our house looked like at Christmas time. And mm-hmm. like, I don't know, pets who are gone, like so many huge and like also trivial moments. Right. Yeah. Um, where like, I don't know, a word or a sentence was enough to like make that memory live in somebody else. I mean, those that's gone now. Like I'm carrying all these things alone. And that can be for me, one of the most overwhelming parts of grief actually is just even the people I'm closest to and love the most now, you know, like my, my spouse, my children, my sister, um, Cindy, like, because they, our history is just shorter because mm-hmm. they didn't know my parents nearly as well or get to spend as much time with them. Like just trying to even explain any one of those moments would, would be so, I feel like it would just take so much time and I wouldn't be able to make it real. And I'm a writer. Like I'm supposed <laughs> to, I'm supposed to know how to use words to bring these mm-hmm. moments to life, but it's just so hard, you know? And um, 
that's been that's been really difficult and I don't have a positive spin like mm-hmm. to put on that that's just hard like it yeah it was hard while grieving knowing nobody remembered my mom quite the way I did and it yeah. that continues like to really hurt mm-hmm. um you know it doesn't mean I can't share my grief with people or that I'm not supported and loved but yeah the reality is like the people I miss nobody there's nobody left in my life who really knew them you know mm-hmm. the way I did yeah I mean, just thinking about that process of of loss and, um, you know, I remember I lost my mom when I was a child. Um, but even as I've gotten older, you know, sometimes that fear of like, am I forgetting her? Right. Um, because there's, for me, there's so much distance between when I knew her and how long she's been gone, but then also just the connections to people too, right. Mm -hmm. Of, you know, keeping those stories and keeping those memories alive. Um, so as you mentioned, you know, grief, it is a continual process and, you know, who we are and how we are in the world as adoptees, you know, also a continual process. Um, And so, you know, it's, it's hard, right. And there's different waves as people talk about waves of, of grief. Um, But I think, you know, in you sharing in a living remedy, right. That process of grief, as you were going through it in those early stages, I think it really is very helpful. I can say for me as a reader um, was helpful in me, even thinking through feelings that maybe I have still, am still processing, right. Or even ways that I um, need feelings that I didn't even know that I had. And again, I think that's a really key piece of, of, of good writing, helping us to, to think about things in a different way or, or even truths that maybe we weren't aware of yet um, or ready to fully acknowledge until we see um, that experience represented on the page. Well, thank you. I mean, that means a lot to me. I'm, I'm truly honored that you or that anyone kind of spends time with the book. And I know it is like an intense read. You know, of course, I hope there are moments of joy and levity yeah. and, and care and rest. I wanted it to be, I tried to build in places where like a reader could like pause and like breathe you know like the three lists that are in the book those are kind of some of those places but um I do know it's intense I will say like I don't know I think that um I I don't know I'm I'm hoping it can just be good company to people who've like you're saying you've known grief and of course your grief is different than mine but I mean I hope it was good company to you in that and I think there's just so much there's so much pressure, I think, in our society, our culture to um, look away from like deep pain and loss. Mm -hmm. And like we've seen this during the pandemic as well, just how few opportunities there have been for collective grieving. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think there isn't enough acknowledgement in the world of like generational grief and what that means. And so I I think it's important that we not look away, but I know it's difficult. Um, And I'm really honored when people tell me that you know, reading the book has helped them think about their own, their own losses, their own experiences, people they've loved, because I think that's, that's what memoir as a genre um, can do. And that's kind of why I love it is like, the point is actually not to like regale you with, (laughs) with my life story or, (laughs) or, or some version of, of it, even it's like, I always want readers to be able to kind of meet themselves too. And mm-hmm. to be able to think about like what's happened, what's happened to you. And mm-hmm. so, yeah, that's, that's like really meaningful to hear that it did that for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Like you said, a, a good companion, right? And that's what the book felt like. Um, 
it felt like being seen in a way and being understood. Um, like I mentioned, so many points in the book, I'm like writing little notes and I'm like, you know, exclamation points and, you know, just talking back, like having this conversation, right, with the written text um, because of the way that I see myself and similar threads, right, throughout the book. Um, well, we'll talk more about this book in just a moment. Let's take another break. This is Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. You're listening to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Sanaa, and we're here with Nicole Chung, the author of A Living Remedy. Now, Nicole, before the break, something you mentioned that kind of piqued my interest and I wanted to talk about more, you talked about this idea of rest and even incorporating some places in the book or being intentional about hopefully incorporating places where the reader might take a pause and, and take a break. You know, throughout the book, you do talk about, or towards the end of the book anyway, you talk about this idea of, of needing to take a break, but also feeling guilty for taking a break and, and trying and learning to, you know, try to listen to your body and resting and, and saying no, which I absolutely love saying no. Um, I'm wondering, how are you feeling now with your relationship to taking those needed breaks and to saying no? Oh my gosh. It, I mean, learning to say no to things is a, it's an ongoing learning process because <laughs> I mean, it's still, it's still sometimes really difficult for me. Yeah. I'm like, if I think people will be disappointed or if I can't do a favor for somebody, um, even if I don't know them, that's really hard. It's I've had to just like prioritize, try to prioritize and do my best. Um, I got the idea from my friend, Jasmine Guillory, who's a wonderful romance writer, but she, she has, has like a decision matrix, basically mm. like a series of questions she asks herself to try to make decisions. Um, and I've adop like adopted and adapted that for myself, mm -hmm. just to like whenever I get a new ask, I have these different strategies of like really thinking it through. Um, and I don't know, but it's hard. And taking, taking time to rest is still hard. I no longer have a full-time editing job, um, which I worked for many years and which I loved, truly loved, uh, and also found it like impossible to write this book <laughs> while uh -huh. doing that. So I, I, um, I left that position while I was working on a living remedy and I'm, I'm still, I'm right now a full-time freelancer, um, which was supposed to give me more flexibility, <laughs> you know, more time in my schedule, like more time for writing and mm -hmm. not just writing, but like the thinking and the creative yeah. brainstorming and the the space and the rest that mm -hmm. you, or at least I, as a writer need to be able to come up with ideas at all. And, um, and it hasn't quite worked out that way because of the <laughs> tour, <laughs> but I, I am like eager to see in the next year or so as things settle down, is this like a lifestyle that's more conducive to mm -hmm. creation? Um, and I also recognize what a great privilege it is, you know, to have been able to make that choice. That said, I'm still like hustling. You have to hustle to make any kind of living as a freelancer. Mm -hmm. um, having not ever done it full time before, I um, yeah, didn't realize I knew it was a lot of work, but you know, like I work a lot of weekends, like why? And I'm just like, why am I doing this <laughs> when the whole point was to like have things settle a bit? I guess the difference is that my schedule is flexible, right? Mm -hmm. So I do work some weekends, but I'm not working eight to 10 hour, 12 hour days every, every day of the week anymore. Um, and I am trying to consciously build space into my life to be able to work on longer projects, to be able to think about, you know, potentially other books. Um, 
but yeah, I don't feel I've reached any kind of like <laughs> equilibrium yet. It's a, it's just an ongoing process. And I'm frequently reminded as a parent that even mm -hmm. if I have my working life, my work life balance in order, of course, like just the, the real and legitimate needs of children and dog will, um, <laughs> will constantly like require, you know, my attention elsewhere. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's just kind of the reality, but, but yeah, I have been, I do feel really lucky to have been able to kind of decide to be freelance for this time and it may not last you know I may be looking for other staff positions but right now especially with a book to promote and lots of travel you know it's mm -hmm. been really helpful yeah you know I mean I think I see this as you talked about this in the book right changing this kind of like orientation creating a new relationship with yourself I see this as part of that process of like questioning um, some of the lies of capitalism right that we've yeah. internalized and of course for sure it's not just you know individual changes that need to be made but also systemic changes um, but I always get excited when I hear people talking about well actually I'm going to question you know my need to say yes to everything right. Or, you know, this belief of I have to say yes all the time or else I'm going to miss out on something. Or like being a people pleaser. Yes. I have to say, I didn't really think of myself as a people pleaser uh, until I realized how hard it was to say no to things. Why? <laughs> because I don't want to disappoint people. Like, yes, sometimes there's a, a good reason to do it. It's an opportunity. Sometimes it's paid. Mm -hmm. Or sometimes it's just like, again, like a favor you really want to do for someone. Um, but you cannot say yes to everything, right? There's, it's just right. not possible. And I think in addition to kind of reevaluating my relationship to like work and hustle, I had to really change my relationship to writing itself. Mm -hmm. um, like in order to finish this book, I actually had to, I had to build more rest and more care and more intentionality um, and more patience into my writing process because I think with my first book and with almost everything I've ever done, you know, as a freelancer, mm -hmm. it's been very much about like, it's work I enjoyed, but it's been very much about like buckling down and knuckling through. And mm -hmm. if I had needs, like frequently ignoring them. And yeah. if I was tired, like ignoring that too. And this book, I think because of the subject matter and the emotional terrain, I couldn't really just force myself, you know, to like, to write for 10 hours straight or mm -hmm. to hit a deadline, like no matter what. Um, I just needed more time and more space. And I had to be a lot more patient with myself. It's the first thing I've written that demanded so much of me, but also required me to show myself grace. Mm. Um, and I think that's why ultimately it's the book it is. You know, it's not a perfect book, but I think I do think it's the best thing I've ever written. And I think it has a, I think there's an emotional honesty there and a, a sense of freedom I actually felt while writing that, I don't know, I haven't felt with other work. And so mm -hmm. I'm really grateful for that, but it was only possible because I really changed like who I was as a writer. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know you've mentioned saying, you know, before that, 
writing this book and taking this different approach and, and you know, ha- being forced really to take breaks and, and, and really think through um, what you're writing in a different way than other works. You said you've, you know, learned to trust yourself in a new way, or like you just mentioned that freedom and focus that you hadn't felt when writing, you know, other pieces. And I'm wondering, you know, how much of that are processes that you can incorporate into future work and how much of it really is because of the subject matter, right? And it might not really be something that you can replicate in other writings. Yeah. So I think, I think in terms of longer projects, it's definitely how I want to go forward. Mm-hmm. Um, and like, for instance, I'm trying to not put a ton of pressure on myself to figure out like what the next like solo book is. I have an anthology I've co-edited that's out later this year, but after that, like, I'm not really sure what the next project is. And I'm, I'm okay with that. Actually, I'm trying to be um, patient and just kind of give myself the time. And I recognize too, like, I don't know, many writers can write and focus on a new thing on book tour. And I do not have that ability. Uh-huh. So I'll need to be home and settled for a bit before I can focus on the next thing. Um, there was a time when that really would have bothered me and I'm very much okay with it right now. Uh, a longer project, you have the time, the runway, the like, I think space to, to, you can kind of take it slow if you want to, until mm-hmm. you start inviting other people like your agent and your editor and whoever else into the process, it's yours. It's a very private, you know, project. Um, Mm -hmm. And you can take the time you want to take with it. Honestly, I think um, it's harder to do right with work on deadline, like, like closer, shorter deadlines. You know, I have a weekly advice column that just has to get done. Um, And when I find myself working on the weekend, often that's it. (laughs) Uh, You know, I take on freelance assignments and those two have deadlines that are not really movable. Um, so with shorter work, I mean, it tends to be like, I'll take it on, I'll focus on it and, and it's kind of a burst of work and then it's done and I'm on to the next thing. Um, but I do think, I do think that I will be trying to like work and write with a lot more intention and hopefully freedom and slowness and care, um, you know, for longer works or longer projects that give me, give me that luxury. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that different orientation towards the work. Um, and you mentioned you do have another book coming out. Um, it is an edited anthology, When We Become Ours. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about that anthology. Yeah, I'd be delighted to. So it's a young adult anthology. Uh, it's co-edited by my fellow transracial adoptee, Shannon Gibney, who's amazing. Um, mm-hmm. It's out with Harper Teen this October, late October. Um, it's my first book in the, like for young, young people. I hope it's not my last. I would, I would really love to write more literature um, for young people, but with this anthology, I'm primarily an editor. I did write a short story for it, but every story is by uh, a transracial adoptee. And, you know, it's just been like a really interesting experience. First of all, like it's been nice to be editing again. Mm-hmm. Um, by the time we really started reading submissions and editing, I have, I was no longer a full-time editor and I've missed it. Mm-hmm. So it was great to get to do that work with writers. Um, and also to collaborate with Shannon, who's yeah. wonderful. Um, I think like, we hope that it will be, of course, no one anthology can be like the be all end all in this, this area, but there is a real dearth of literature for young people by and for like centering adoptees, mm-hmm. um, and so this this collection is just kind of aimed at at trying to change that. And we hope it's the first of many. So we're, um, you know, it's been really exciting to work with 
the different authors, um, some emerging, some established, many, this is their first story for in YA. So mm -hmm. it's been really cool. So we're excited about it. Yeah, I'm super excited. Um, first, the cover is absolutely beautiful. It's I a mean, stunner. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that alone, I mean, so gorgeous. And then as you mentioned, you know, just the importance of having adoptee stories written by adoptees. And what I really love is just thinking about all the folks who are part of the anthology, like you mentioned, some some established writers, some emerging writers. So I think it also gives um, a, a good range of perspectives and approaches um, to the work. So I'm super excited about that. I mean, i I can't wait. So I'm I'm very excited to see this out because as you mentioned, you know, where are the books for for young folks? And I can think about for me when I was, you know, growing up, how I wish that there would have been, you know, an anthology like this one or even books like yours and Shannon's, right? When I was growing up. So such important work and I cannot wait. Thank you. Yeah, we're excited. Yes. Well, Nicole, it has been such a pleasure chatting with you today. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. No, thank you. It was a real pleasure. Thanks again to Nicole Chung. Her book is A Living Remedy. As I mentioned, as we started our conversation, there are so many themes interwoven throughout this book. Of course, grief and, and the failures of our healthcare system are very central to the book because she's talking about the, the loss of both her father and mother. But also throughout the book, I see these themes of belonging and community care. And also as an adoptee, these feelings of family and understanding who we are um, as adoptees and our relationships to our family and again that layer of belonging and these ideas of, of where we belong and feelings of belonging and so I very much enjoyed reading this book yes it is it can be a very heavy topic and I understand that a lot of us are experiencing grief and going at a different phases of that grieving process, but I can't say enough about how much I appreciated Nicole sharing this book at the time that she did while she's also very much in the early stages of grief. And I think that it will be a comfort to folks who are also experiencing those early stages of grieving as well. Again, that book is A Living Remedy. For today's positive note, I want to leave you with this quote from Orson Scott Card, the author of Shadow of the Giant, and it says, life is full of grief to exactly the degree we allow ourselves to love other people. Mm. I think that is a beautiful reminder about the role of grief and how deeply we feel certain losses that is very much tied to how much we love other people. You've been listening to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR. I'm Sanaa and I'm here every week. Make sure that you're subscribed to Let's Grab Coffee in podcast format so you never miss a conversation. And if you're anything like me, there are points in our talk with Nicole where I gotta go back and listen to that. And if you're subscribed in podcast format, you can do just that. And of course, you can also share it with a friend. I can't wait to be back with you next week.